Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. The time is 7am. You are in the studio with me, Zoya, George. Good morning. And we have a very special, not guest, but brand new host. You may recognise her voice from having been on the show a couple of times, um, presenting on Freedom of Species, having a spectacular podcast of her own. It's Madison Griffith. Can everyone hear me? Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, everything's good. We're just... uh, Thumbs up. I can see the mic. (laughs) (laughs) I can see the mic. It's my first early morning, clearly. (laughs) We got in and I looked over at Madison. I'm like, which mic are you? And she's literally sitting between two mics and then we're pointing at her. And I'm like, that's not quite how it works, buddy. You've done this before. (laughs) The more the merrier. (laughs) So we have a pretty exciting show coming up, I reckon. Yes. Yeah. Um, we are, we've got news headlines coming up, obviously. After that, at 7.20, who do we have, George? We're going to be speaking to Dr. Margaret Beavis, who is the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War Australia. And we're going to be talking about basically the military-industrial complex, Australia's arms exports, in light of a recent Freedom of Information request by The Guardian, which revealed that, not surprisingly, Australia has been selling weapons to countries accused of war crimes, such as the Democratic Republic of Congo, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Sri Lanka. Yes, so it's a pretty huge topic that's not getting a lot of coverage in the media, unsurprisingly as well. So kind of looking forward to unpacking some of those issues with her. That sounds really, really interesting. You were talking to me about this a little while ago, and I was like, I know nothing about this. It's something that absolutely needs to be spoken about so much more. Mm. Um, After that, we are going to be playing some more speeches from Invasion Day. We've been playing one or two speeches every single week since Invasion Day from the rally, um, and this time we have a couple more to share with you. So that should be really good, just kind of keep the momentum going, and and for those of you who weren't able to attend or weren't able to hear certain speeches, we're going to be playing those today, maybe in the next coming weeks as well. At 7.55, we have Lutfia Ali, who is an academic at RMIT University, talking about a documentary or film that she put together with a bunch of other academics about women of colour in academia. And it sounds really interesting. It's part of the Activism at the Margins conference that is happening right now at RMIT that... um, 
Vicky Grieve Williams spoke about last week, who was one of the organisers of the conference. So for those of you who um, you know aren't able to go to the conference or, or anything like that, we've got someone in to talk about the things that are happening, and hopefully over the next couple of weeks we might even get some more people in. So I'm really great. excited to hear that, and I saw on Twitter yesterday a lot of people talking about Patricia Collins' keynote oh, speech and yeah. on, on intersectionality and activism. Oh, I saw some, really I saw wished some, I'd been there. I know, I saw some pictures and videos of that, and it was just... Oh, Patricia Hill Collins. <laughs> Could you imagine being in the same room as her? I mean, George, you were in the same room as Angela Davis once, weren't you? What? Yeah, the <laughs> Prison Abolition Conference. She was, yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's actually coming up this year. Just keep, in mi- keep that in mind. Tuesday breakfast road trip. Definitely, <laughs> yeah. And then at 8.10. We'll be speaking to Sam Hibbins, who's a, Green- who's a Greens MP, um, and covers a lot of the LGBTQA plus stuff. And... We're going to be talking about a bill introduced to Parliament which will amend or hopes to amend the Equal Opportunity Act. And, I, and my understanding is it's kind of trying to address some of the issues that have popped up with the um, religious discrimination bill and trying to address that at the state level so that schools and, and other institutions c- can't discriminate against queer people. So that would be good to hear about. Mm, absolutely. Mm. Up now, though, we have thrown Madison into the deep end. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is how we haze at Tuesday breakfast. I, I messaged Madison the day before going, hey, you're doing news headlines, by the way. So off you go, Madison. Okay, so these news headlines are taken from The Guardian. Uh, a donor to the Liberal National Party received a $5.5 million jobs and investment grant, despite potentially being ineligible because it is a registered training organisation. So this was Nolan Meats, and it was approved to receive the grant under the $200 million Regional Jobs and Investment Packages business stream, despite being listed as a registered training organisation, which disqualifies it under the program guidelines. The Shadow Infrastructure Minister, Catherine King, said the government had failed the test Scott Morrison set for Bridget McKenzie by funding an ineligible project. Also, former Resources Minister Matt Canavan repeatedly delayed releasing documents about his interactions with coal, coal, sorry, I always say coil, coal lobbyists. (laughs) It's a very serious topic and I really just went coil, coal lobbyists until he resigned his post, rendering a freedom of information request void. In weather news... Heavy rain in parts of regional New South Wales could have relieved immediate water security issues in as many as 20 towns. And Scott Morrison, people still hate Scott Morrison, is battling rolling ructions inside his government and sustained opprobrium from voters after a summer of catastrophic fires and now catastrophic floods, mm. with the latest, latest Guardian Essential poll confirming the Prime Minister remains in the political doldrums. And in more glamorous news, let's talk about Parasite which won mm. everything at the Oscars. And so the victory for Parasite is the first time a foreign language film has won Best Picture. And on his victory tour of awards ceremonies leading up to this, Bong had told audiences, once you overcome the one-inch-tall barrier of subtitles, you'll be introduced to so many more amazing films. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's, <laughs> That's so such good. a great sentiment. So Zoe and I can't go and see that film because it's scary. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't do scary. I literally, on, we were driving in here and I said that I couldn't sleep last night because I watched a scary episode of Doctor Who. Oh, that, yes. That is that genuinely... That is genuinely how bad I am. It's scary. So mm. there was a hilarious thing on Twitter, which is how I start every sentence. Apparently, um, <laughs> love it. <laughs> yeah. 
of uh, it was it was at the Austers of things that aren't actually queer but are queer, um, and it was the Women in Parasite. So I really want uh, to see it now. Yeah. Um, after that. That sounds interesting. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I might try as well, even though yeah. it's not my yeah. genre. Yeah. Yes. Like speaking of things, yeah, things that like aren't queer. But are queer. It's like hustlers, right? Well, that was yeah. yeah, yeah. J Lo, uh, pole dancing to Fiona Apple, incredibly queer. Yeah, the, the whole film was so queer. Like, the name of the film, Diane, so queer. Mm. <laughs> why is why why? Just that idea of like it's got a very Jolene longing um, woman name feel to it. Oh, Diane. I I can kind of see that. Yeah, Diane. yeah. Or like, you know, windswept beaches and someone walking along just yearning after the person they can't be with because Absolutely. her name's Diane. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. That's a, yeah, that's a really, really good point. Anyway, should we go to a song maybe? Sure. I also just wanted to, I saw this uh, yesterday that Western Australia is planning to ban puppy farms and the sale of puppies from pet shops, which Ooh. seems pretty significant. I saw that. Yes. Is that, is this the first of its kind in Australia? I don't know. Actually yeah, that's I, I I vaguely saw that as well. I think that's that's a really really big, a really really big step. Yeah. Maybe what we'll do is we'll go to a song, have a quick peek through it, mm. and come back with an update about puppy farms. So I would like to play a remix of a chronic song with Sampa the Great, and this track is called Black Is Beautiful. <laughs> Here is a story told to the children of Africa. Beginning of time from the birth, from the first, if you want to hear the truth, my motherland, you carried all life in your hand. On the other hand, we trying to kill you. Remember in my youth, they told me my skin was a curse from the earth and they took me for a fool. But under my review, I'm melanin, still run the earth and the universe covered in two. We talking about you, black skin, black skin, black guy. Black love, black kids, black heart. Black and then being in black start. If you're tired of hearing black, here's another black part. They try to wipe away all my black thoughts and cover up all my black past. Blow the nose of the barrel just cause they don't want to let me see up on the glory of God. They never told us that black is beautiful. They never told us black is beautiful. They never told us that black is beautiful. They never told us. Yeah. Black conscious, understand the plight of my people. Now we looking way past eagle. Another generation march on the steps to feel legal. Just so they can kill another hero. Sounds so feeble to fight for the rights that you know. The land that you own for the right that you own. Just to push back to the life that you know. Right back fighting for the rights of us only and my people. Came from the land of the blacks. Kingdoms and nations in fact. You studied old black. Your knowledge of the science and spirits and chemistry numbers and math. We manage all that. The knowledge of aerodynamics and pyramids building all that. A matter of fact, inventions you see, trust me, that they all forget to mention they black. What credit is debt? You cover up my greatness on purpose. My future path vaguely uncertain. 
My destiny truly still hurting. Melanin deep and I'm still out searching. Royalty, royalty, help me find shelf. Africa, Africa, help me find wealth. Zion is, Zion is asking for help in the day of my judgment story. I go tell ya. They never told us that black is beauty. They never told us black is beauty. They never told us that black is beauty. is preaching good God the things that he preaches I wonder who taught him to preach mm. teacher is teaching where did he get his degree now it is no mystery who taught us black history is up that was a great song what was that George that is a re- recent remix from 2019 of a chronic song featuring Sampa the Great, and it's called Black is Beautiful. Oh, Sampa is just the, just the, my mic wasn't on. Sampa <laughs> is just the utter, utter best. Absolutely, absolutely love her. So before we went to the song, we had a quick touch on the fact that puppy farms in Western Australia have just been made illegal. Um, On top of that, I had a quick look at the legislation in each state, and this is not the first of its kind, but it is definitely one of the first. So Victoria seems to be one of the only states where it is absolutely not possible. Um, There are loopholes in South Australia under their law. Um, ACT sort of has a code of practice, but they can still sell animals in pet shops. But everywhere else, puppy farms, or at least the sale of animals in pet shops, and then the the issues that come with that are still legal. So it's it's still a big issue all the way across Australia, which, I mean, it's pretty sad. Like, I, I kind of knew it, but didn't know it. And it's just the fact that people are allowed to do this. It, anyway, anyway. So, yes, puppy farms. Yeah. <laughs> Good on Western Australia. Very, very happy with them. <laughs> Um, we have an interview coming up at 7.20, but we thought we would take this time to have a little chat about something that the very impressive Madison Griffiths wrote about the other day. Mm. Yes. So if you are interested in queer news, um, which we is all everyone. <laughs> That's our show. If you're not interested in queer news. <laughs> if you are interested like, in queer news, um, <laughs> you happen to be listening queer to the update. Update station. Uh, <laughs> so Jamila Jamil uh received a lot of, as in the absolutely stunning uh, actor and radio presenter Jamila Jamil, received a lot of, hate isn't the right word, um, blowback perhaps? Yes, yes, from it being announced that she will be involved in the new show Legendary, which is a show on um, voting and and queer culture and ballroom culture, um, something that not all queers know how to do and not all queers are entitled to do, which is um, an important point here that I think Jamila Jamil did not acknowledge. Um, But she ended up coming out as queer 
um, in response to this backlash. And what came with that was an unbelievable amount of biphobia, um, gatekeeping, and Jamila Jamil said that due to her South Asian background and um, the complexity surrounding her her identity, it took her a long time to come out as queer. So I wrote an article about my own experiences coming out as queer, which I was meant to post on my Facebook to come out to my South Asian family, but then at the last minute decided to instead post a cute photo of me bald, which I thought would uh, suffice. <laughs> <laughs> and freaked out. So, um, yeah. yeah, that happened. But, yeah, the, uh, the Jamila Jamil train was interesting, and her responses... She essentially said that I've had a rainbow emoji in my name for a long time. Why didn't you all know? Um, which I thought was really, really interesting. And uh, I sort of wrote about, um, I'll read a little section, just one little paragraph to summarise what my 7am brain is not doing. Um, that queerness as a blanket term means too much and too little at the same time. So for many members of the LGBTQI plus community to see a celebrity as outspoken as Jamil insists that pasting a rainbow emoji next to her name was a quiet but demonstrable signal of her queerness all along felt a little on the nose. Is Jamil under the impression that rainbows pop up out of nowhere, devoid of the storm that occurred in the first place? And more importantly, what does her storm look like? But in saying that, we don't deserve or are not entitled to anyone's trauma, um, especially not cutie pot, um, women of colour. So it was an article that I got a little bit of backlash from as well, which was really? quite interesting. Yeah. Um, which I think is always healthy, especially in our spaces. But um, just ignoring the anti-blackness that went into the casting of Jamil, um, which I understand. I do find it interesting that in a world where, um, you know, someone like RuPaul has had an entirely white cast, um, some of whom are not queer, just friends of, of Rue, um, why Jamila, Jamil gets more backlash than, um, why a woman of colour gets more backlash than, than years of sort of queer representation being very, very white, and not even queer in some instances. So I, I do find that, um, yeah, that was... That was a little bit frustrating, mm. but it, it also worth acknowledging that the show is not necessarily uh, just around queerness. It is around a subset of queerness that has been championed by a lot of um, queer, trans, black people, and that needs to be acknowledged thoroughly. Mm. I thought the pushback saying that she should have been clearer around the rainbow whilst absolutely rainbows don't pop out of anywhere they they aren't you know it's, it's let's talk about semiotics symbols are not you know <laughs> symbols need to be connected to a signifier uh, but i also feel that you know the history of queerness and especially queerness within communities of color like you know i think all of us here are south asian um it is something that is often very very carefully coded and mm. very gently coded in a way where perhaps putting a rainbow up on your Twitter name is the strongest statement you can make Absolutely. At, at that point in time. It's, you know, that, that it, I think it does feed into that, that big, big history of, of secret queer coding, but perhaps it, it wasn't even in this world now where we perceive that we have to be out all the time and everyone mm. must be out to everyone. And if you're a public figure, you must be out. Mm. It, it doesn't take into account the vagaries of, of and the intersections of culture 
and and that kind of thing. Absolutely. And I think one thing I've noticed about talking to white people my whole life um, is... I think that needs to be a sentence that... (laughs) Like that to start like a lot of conversation. <laughs> yeah, I said it's so salty, um, and I'm not even going to apologise for that because I quite Good. like that. Um, yeah. Is that one, one thing I find really interesting about Jamila Jamil is her relationship to femininity as as a form of, of rebellion, um, and something a lot of South Asian people um, that I've seen comparatively with that of white people, we have a really complex relationship with appropriate forms of femininity and rebelling against ideals mm. of beauty and, and performance. And, you know, for a lot of white queers, um, there's just not that focus on being, uh, you know, sweet girl with that's, you know, nice and polite. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say what my nan says about me, which is very, very cute and endearing. But, um, yeah, Jamila Jamil's relationship to her femininity um, has always been a place of contentious, uh, you know, stuff stuff the patriarchy. I'm going to look however which way I, I want to look. Mm. Um, is very, very South Asian, and I love her for that. Mm. Um, and I suppose in some ways, if before she came out as queer, it could have fallen into the box of speaking of things that are queer but aren't queer. But that that powerful femininity that she has, when you see her on TV, when you see her in, in you know on the red carpet or whatever it's so high femme and it's so high femme. and it's there's 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 a uh, not that people who aren't queer don't have a strength in their femininity that i'm not i'm not saying that at all but it's that that extreme femininity that's as you said subverting it both in a cultural way through being a person of color but also through being a queer person expressing that in a in a really powerful way I could go on about that forever. We could both go on about that forever. But um, we're going to be having an interview coming up soon. So stick with us. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Six years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going, you know. Like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there. 
as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here, and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. On the line we have Dr Margaret Beavis, who is the President for the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Time to get outdoors and lock in your next fitness challenge. Time to tackle Australia's original team challenge, Oxfam Trail Walker, happening in March. You and three mates will journey through 100 kilometres of bush trail within 48 hours. Teams start together, stick together and finish together. Oxfam Trail Walker is a life-changing experience and every step you take helps raise vital funds to support people living in poverty. Register your team now at trailwalker.oxfam.org.au. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Um, up now we have an interview and um, Dr. Margaret, are you on the line? Can you hear me? We can. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. And just to clarify, and sorry about that, um, Dr. Dr. Margaret Beavis is the Vice President for the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. (laughs) So you're here to talk to us about Australia's arms manufacturing exports in light of a recent Freedom of Information request from The Guardian, which revealed that there are several countries that we, exp- uh, we export weapons to that have been accused of war crimes. This is obviously a very serious issue. But before we sort of get stuck into what's going on at the moment, I'd, I'm, I'd really like to ask you about, I guess, a bit, of, a bit of the history, because my understanding is that it didn't used to be something that Australia was particularly concerned with in terms of the selling of weapons. How has this changed and why has this changed? Um, I think it goes back a few years when uh, Tony Abbott managed to be so discouraging of the car industry that it actually packed up its bags and went home. I mean, there are many students in that, but there was a substantial loss of manufacturing jobs and the government um, seems to have turned to the military. There's a lot of lobbying in, in weapons industries and they seem to see an opportunity in subsidising weapons manufacturers. So uh, Tony, uh, Malcolm Turnbull put forward a $3.8 billion uh, loan subsidy program for to boost the weapons industry with the aim that Australia becomes one of the top 10 weapons mm. exporters. Um, and so I think this has been a, a government project. I think they were very concerned about loss of jobs in South Australia and what the implications would be for that both um, on the ground and also in the election. That's, that's, that's huge, that figure of subsidies. That's massive. I think it's something that is not talked about nearly enough in the media. Is this a bipartisan... Oh, sorry, you go. No, sorry. It is bipartisan, as far as I understand it. Um, What's really interesting is if you subsidise other industries to the same extent, you get much more bang for buck. We know that there are many more jobs available for the same amount of money in uh, health in education and in renewable energy, there's some really good research coming out of Brown University saying sort of about double the number of jobs in one area and, and one and a half times in others. So mm. if they're trying to justify the military, the subsidies on jobs grounds, it's actually uh, very poor value for money. 
There's also poor value for money, given a lot of this money is going to very large international companies to their Australian subsidiaries. Yeah, and this idea that it'll somehow trickle down to the workers employed at these companies is kind of a a ludicrous idea. Well, as I said, there's, there's been really clear research on a number of occasions just showing that you get much more uh, employment and presumably much better value for society, certainly with better education, better health and more investment in things like renewable energy. Yeah, totally. And what about uh, this this whole process where we've seen a lot of politicians move into um, weapons manufacturing positions? Do you think this is also an issue of transparency um, and potentially corruption? There is the... the, um American president in the early 60s warned of the rise of the military-industrial complex. Mm. In Australia, we're seeing the rise of the military-industrial political and educational complex. We have politicians such as Kim Beasley, who for a while was on the board of Lockheed Martin. We've got, he was ex-defence minister. We've got Brendan Nelson, who, even while he was uh, running the Australian War Memorial, managed to have a directorship in the very French company that makes weapons, and including nuclear weapons. Um, the politicians, Christopher Pine is now an advisor that's with a branch of an accounting firm that's interested in military contracts. Um, there is a definite pattern of senior public servants moving into military areas. Uh, the board of Lockheed Martin, if you just look at that, you'll find it's listed with senior public servants. Uh, Amanda Vanstone has moved onto that board, I think. There's certainly a, a um, What's the word? The people going in and out of mm. politics, politics of the public service and into the weapons industry, and it certainly means that you worry about the decision making when they're in power, and also their abuse of their contacts once they've left office. Totally. The Saturday paper reported that the former head of the Defence Department, Paul Barrett, described it as a revolving door that spins fast, uh, even faster between government and military manufacturers. Yes, revolving door was the word I was looking yeah. for. <laughs> yeah, which quite succinctly describes that. Yeah. And so you mentioned that this is also uh, something that involves education, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on universities like the University of Melbourne, which take money from massive companies like Lockheed Martin, weapons manufacturing companies. Yes, there's been quite a push from the government with what they call the Defence Science Partnership Program. So there are a number of universities that take money from weapons manufacturers. Uh, Medical Association for Prevention of War have been uh, had a significant campaign with Lockheed Martin and the University of Melbourne. We've gone and interviewed and spoken with um, Vice-Chancellors, uh, no, not the Vice-Chancellor, he's a few, but Deputy Vice-Chancellors of Research of ethics, um, we've spoken to the Dean of Medicine, the Dean of Engineering, we've spoken to a Professor of Engineering. We're very disturbed that the University of Melbourne is taking money from Lockheed Martin, um, given Lockheed Martin's got a very long history of convictions for corruption um, around lobbying and foreign influence, and also is a major manufacturer of nuclear weapons. It's a great, uh, it's actually a disgrace that our universities are so short of funds that they're reduced to taking money from these highly unethical companies. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we can't deny the fact that there is a lack of funding for universities, but surely this is not the place to seek that money. Yes, I think that they, they, the University of Melbourne, when we've spoken to them, have come up with, with defences like 
oh, we don't know what the research is going to be used for. Well, if you're dealing with Lockheed Martin, which is a company that's 79% weaponry, mm. it's pretty certain that uh, the PhD research that's being done will end up in weapons. Um, they're doing research on autonomous vehicles and sensor technology. And um, I think to pretend that this research won't end up with the weapons companies and weapons manufacturers is disingenuous mm. at best. Yeah, pretty poor excuse. If you just tuned in, I'm talking to doc, Dr. Margaret Beavis, who's the Vice President for the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. I'm interested in asking you about the media and how the media covers these issues. Do you think that there is a degree of silence that, we, that, we've, that we've seen and continue to see around this? Absolutely. I think the coverage of um, this issue has been really poor. The, the exception, there's a number of exceptions. The Guardian has done some really good work um, with freedom of information uh, about where Australia is sending its exports. And shamefully, we are exporting to a number of countries that are um, accused of crimes. Mm. Uh, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, um, the Congo, uh, Sri Lanka, and we had a large number of exports to those countries. And what's really uh, concerning is that there's absolutely no transparency around these transactions. The freedom of information um, that we, the Medical Association for Prevention of War, have put in freedom of information to try and find out what we're selling to Saudi Arabia. Um, the Guardian have certainly done extensive freedom of information work about not just Saudi Arabia, but those other countries I've mentioned. And there is the material that comes back is so heavily redacted that you can't tell what's mm. happening at all. So because there's no transparency, there's no accountability. Now, um, the Medical Association for Prevention of War wrote to the government and said, this is not good enough. They wrote back and said that, well, actually, we, uh, the public servants involved, said we've not approved any uh, sales that have been assessed as being contrary to the Arms Trade Treaty. In other words, not to countries that are accused of war crimes. But there's no transparency around this. There's no accountability about this. And the justification they give is not one of national security. It's one of commercial incompetence. Mm. We need to know that's a very poor excuse for no transparency about weapon sales to countries that have uh, been clearly accused of war crimes. Um, It's extraordinary that they're selling weapons to places like the Congo especially, but also to Yemen and Saudi Arabia where... Sorry, my apologies. They're not selling to Yemen. They're selling to the United Arab Emirates mm. and the Saudi Arabian governments who are, are at war in Yemen, and there's a lot of war crimes happening in Yemen by both sides. Yeah, and clearly that's a, a case in point of militarism in action if the bottom line is money rather than yeah oh, national interest or something. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a, a company in Canberra called EOS Systems who got not just uh, the subsidies... Um, the loan subsidies, but also got direct grant of 36 million, and they make weapon systems that uh, put sort of guns and rocket launchers on top of vehicles, and they sell the weapons to the Saudis, but they promise us that those weapons don't cross the border into Yemen. Well, how would they know? How would yeah. they know if they're selling these weapons to the Saudis? How on earth would they know what the Saudis do to deploy these weapons? And there's a lot of wishful thinking and not um, not really looking at the reality of what happens on the ground in terms of these weapon sales and and the government has a lot of questions to answer. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'd imagine that the silence allows for this and and even motivates companies to get involved with Australia because they can get away with this, basically. Absolutely. There's no transparency, so there's no accountability. And so 
what kind of work is done through your uh, organisation, through campaigns, and, and how can people get involved with this issue? Well, um, they can, we, we, we have a number of campaigns. Uh, we've certainly been done some research in the last year looking at the spread of military funding into education, which is happening at primary and secondary level as well as university mm. level. Um, we've gone and spoken to the head of Questacon. We've certainly had a campaign with the Australian War Memorial, which is taking weapons company sponsorships, which is pretty revolting when you think it's yeah. um, memorialising the dead that have been... Um, by these weapons companies' weapons, um, we've certainly had dealings with Brendan Nelson, who's got a major. Who, whilst he was head of the War Memorial, had a major conflict of interest because he was on the board of Tali, this French company. Mm. At the same time, he was head of the War Memorial. Um, we've certainly opposed the expansion of the War Memorial. They were spent half a billion dollars, which just to display more um, weaponry and open up a vast hall to display weaponry. I think that's inappropriate. Uh, We've got a number of campaigns. We've, we're working with the arms, Australian Arms Control Coalition to try and um, get some transparency about weapons exports um, and also recently sent a letter about landmines because Donald Trump's uh, now opening up land, use of landmines again, which is covered by United Nations Treaty. And yet, um, So we've been calling on the government to make undertakings not to deploy landmines, not to manufacture landmines and not to allow landmines to transit through Australia. Um, we've also got a quick nukes campaign, which is to try and get, we're um, working to get Australian superannuation companies um, to not have money in nuclear weapons. It's pretty awful to think that almost all superannuation companies in Australia um, are invested in nuclear weapons companies, uh, the only exceptions being Australian Ethical and Future Super and probably another super company called Earth Super. Mm-hmm. But it's really uh, very troubling when you think that lots of Australians who are saving up their retirement, some of that money is going to help uh, build nuclear weapons. It's pretty appalling. Yeah, absolutely. If people would like to get involved, please come to us at au. sign up for our newsletter, join. Um, we have both uh, memberships for people in the health professionals, but we also have associate memberships and we're always very happy to have new and active members or just new and passive members, whichever. Yeah. Thank you for all that information. I mean, this is clearly a very concerning issue to hear about the fact that Australia is, is militarised at every level to the point at which it's filtering into our education institutions. It's extremely concerning. I hope we see, we'll see some kind of media investigation into this and, and some more discussions around this. Uh, but thank you so much for your time this morning, Dr. Margaret Beavis. Mm. <laughs> Thanks for the invitation. 3CR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to one at 3CR Community Radio. Please subscribe now. Testami una ila ila 3CR Community Radio araja al ishtrak al an. Ningal ungalin samuha vanoli 3CR ai kettu kondirukkirgal. Indre ninaiyungal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Metsukketsek Radio i Gaeranin Oratsanguda Melbumi Hai Kaotin. Hima artsanakrvetsek ipr 3CR antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR.
a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. 3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Just before um, that, we heard a song by a band called Awa, and that track is called Al Assad. They're a really awesome female band from Israel. Um, they're really good. I love your music choices, George. Every single <laughs> Tuesday, I come in and I get to listen to more music. That <laughs> I honestly, I there's your your, mu- your playlist that you put together for 3CR is like my favorite thing in the entire world. I listen to it. <laughs> All the time. It's oh, like being back you. in 3CR. <laughs> and speaking about being back in 3CR and how amazing it is and all about 3CR, this week is Subscriber Drive, which basically is us calling out to all of you out there to subscribe, re- um, renew your subscription or make a subscription with 3CR. You can do that on 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. But... Why do you think we need to subscribe to 3CR? Madison, why would you? Why do you subscribe <laughs> Ooh, to 3CR? <laughs> uh, oh, oh, gosh, my headphones just fell off. Uh, I think we should subscribe to 3CR. I feel like I'm at school doing like a report. <laughs> I no. think we should subscribe to 3CR because uh, it directly funds Radical Radio uh, and media, which is so essential in today's cultural climate. Um, and it means that everyone that gets up and puts in the hard work, um, yeah, gets, gets to be supported in some way, shape or form. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so if you're convinced by that, <laughs> the costs are 35 bucks for concession, 75 for full and 150 for solidarity. So a few options there. Yeah. And really, really important to do. I mean, last week we had Vicky Grieve Williams on um, a little teaser for our interview coming up at the towards in about 
10 minutes time talking to another person who is at the speaking at the activism at the margins conference but Vicky put it so wonderfully when she spoke about the importance of media like radio and especially community radio and especially 3CR in really pushing activism the creation of community and the importance mm. of it to be able to achieve what we need to achieve because we can't do this unless we all come together and we talk about the things that are important and we give a platform to the voices that don't get a platform in quote-unquote mainstream media because they're funded by advertising or by government. The fact that we're not funded by government, the fact that we're funded by listeners and by subscribers is the reason why we get to do this and we get to bring these stories and we get to do things like play content from the Invasion Day protest. Mm. So coming up now, we have a speech by uh, Sissy Austin, a Gunditch Mara Jaburong woman um, and a representative on the First People's Assembly. Uh, she is introduced by Mariki Onus at the beginning. Next, I want to invite Sissy Austin up to the stage. Sissy Austin led a protest at um, the Ballarat Council the other day when they sang their national anthem right after they did a welcome to country and she made an international um, embarrassment of them and there were only a small group of them. The, fierceless, the fearlessness of this human being right here is unmatched, unmatched. She's also on the Treaty Assembly and she's been helping organise around the Japarung Embassy in the last year. Sissy Austin. Um, thank you, Mariki. Yes, my name is Sissy Austin. Um, I acknowledge the traditional caretakers of the land that we're all on today. I'm sorry, I'm really nervous. I'm, um, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm a grassroots woman. I am a very proud and very strong Gunditjmara Kirawarong Japarung woman. And um, I was thinking as we were marching just today how strong, and I think about it every day, how strong and how resilient Aboriginal women are. Um, if you look at most of the fights in this state, they're being led by our, our women, our women both young and old. And um, so many of our, of our young mob here, including myself, we respect so much the um, staunch Koori women that have come before us. Um, In June 2018, we heard that our country was under threat from the Victorian State Government and Major Roads Projects Victoria. And um, I told the story at the Japarung rally of the day that uh, myself and a couple of others, uh, Arnie Tracy, Arnie Tracy Onus in particular, she had a suitcase and a tent and we arrived at, a, at these, um, this, this amazing country that has fueled us for over two years, nearly two years now, to protect and fight for Japarung country. And on that day, Arnie Tracy had a tent on June, in June 2018, and she, she set it up and she had a piece of cardboard and wrote on the piece of cardboard, Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy. And from that, I don't know if everyone has seen, but... From that, it's, it, it's grown like never before, and, and that started with a proud and a strong 
um, Aboriginal woman. And so we've led that fight for nearly two years now and, um, and, and, and that is reflective of the strength of us as, um, as Japarung women. I, I'm, comfor I'm comfortable in staying and I will always be a grassroots um, community member and I'm comfortable in calling out conflicting agendas of the Victorian State Government. Um, as Mariki said, I was elected onto the First, People, the, the First People's Assembly of Victoria, which I'm very grateful for, um, for the South West region. But I'm also, um, I also won't be silenced by the agenda that's being imposed on the elected treaty men members. I, I will stay strong in who I am and I will continually call out what I am not comfortable with and what I don't feel like reflects our community. I'm confused as a Japarung woman that the Victorian state government has a self-determination and treaty agenda and at the same time they're comfortable with destroying Japarung country. Um, so, you know, my, my advice to mob and all of our supporters is to keep an eye on the grassroots mob within these um, within things like the Treaty Assembly. There, there are some of us in there, which is deadly. Um, Arnie Donna is one of them. And, you know, the moment, the moment I feel like um, something such as the, the Victorian state government's treaty agenda isn't something that I'll hand down, feel comfortable handing down to the younger generation, you'll see me step off that treaty assembly. For now, I'm comfortable um, in being in there. Um, and I, I'll, I'll always stay true to who I am and I'll always stay strong. Um, I am strong and, and I'm proud and, um, and yeah. So to the Victorian State Government, I, I just want everyone to, to chant with me, no trees, no treaty, no trees, no treaty, no trees. No treaty, no trees, no treaty. That was the absolutely marvellous Sissy Austin speaking, um, a First Nations um, Assembly representative, Gunajmara and Jabberong woman, at the Invasion Day rally uh, on the 26th um, down in Federation Square. Really, really, really great speech. She's just incredible. There are so many young women who, or young-ish women, who are just doing amazing things in communities, and it's just, uh, it, I, I just, yeah, it's incredible. Up now, speaking of activism, we have um, Dr. Lutfia Ali, who is an academic at RMIT University and is presenting um, at the Activism at the Margins conference this week, which is going on and starts in about an hour, the second day. Yes. <laughs> Good morning. How are you going? Yeah, I'm doing well, Zoya. How are you? I'm very, very well. Thank you. Um, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Oh, yeah, okay. My name is Lutfi Ali and uh, I come from a Cypriot Turkish background. Uh, I mean, I'm an academic and my research overlaps with my history in a sense that I look at identity and belonging and um, 
in a context of Australian social relationship and how it intersects with gender and sexuality and ethnicity and religion and particularly focused on Muslim women. Uh, so, yeah, that's a bit about my background, like a bit of personal, a bit of academic, though. Uh, so in a nutshell, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm doing. And and we got involved. And, yeah, so, yeah, identify as a woman of colour and use that as a political term, a, a political identity. And, yeah, that sort of stems into other areas of research, which is, you know, uh, I guess what we're presenting at um, the Activism on the mar- at the Margins Conference. So, yeah. If I can get into that at some point, it would be great. (laughs) Yeah, That is so interesting. That's just all the stuff that I just love, identity and belonging and being a person of colour. Great. I'm very excited about this conversation. Oh, good. Um, So like we said, you're presenting at this conference. Um, Last week, we spoke to Vicky Mm Greve-Williams, who was one of the organisers of the conference. Um, Can you, though, very briefly just summarise what this conference is about? Yeah, it's about bringing, uh, as the you know the title indicates, activism on the margins. So you know, actually centering what's happening on the margins, and you know, questioning the centre through the voices of on the margins. And you know, there's a lot of uh, scholars and activists and artists and you know, different people involved from different backgrounds, including um, a lot, a lot of uh, Aboriginal Indigenous voices at the conference. So yeah, and all the tensions and questioning around issues around capitalism. Uh, displacement, a lot of uh, focus on displacement, and also, uh, you know, women in domestic violence, for instance. Um, And, yeah, and our contribution to that, uh, to this project, is about women of colour in academia and some of the challenges, you know, associated with being a woman of colour in that space and, you know, what we could identify as, you know, a liberal space but unrooted with, you know, some colonial imageries or, you know, histories there. Mm. Yeah, and what you're presenting, which is in a, a, there's a there's a group of you who yes. are putting this together, is a film. Am I right? Yes, a film. So exactly. What, yeah. <laughs> so what is the film about? Yeah. Okay. So briefly, yeah, there's a few of us involved. Uh, so myself, uh, Kelly Chan, who's a video ethnographer and a PhD student at RMIT. Uh, Sarah Hussain, who's also a PhD student at Deakin. Uh, and Kashifa Aslam, she's also a PhD student at RMIT, and also Tarika Balotaji, uh, who's a Fijian Australian mother, and she does, uh, she's an academic at Deakin, and she does a lot of film work herself, and also, uh, photo voice, and also Kelly Chan as well. So, we all bring in different, uh, expertise, but, you know, we do overlap in the sense that, you know, we're women of colour emerging act, you know, as academics or emerging academics and activists in that space. So um, what we did was, um, yeah, so the conference sort of initiated this topic and, you know, and it's, uh, and it's a long, there's a long history here. So it's, um, we got together and through, the, uh, through uh, Olivia, she's a conference organiser, mm. who sort of, you know, sort of put us in touch because I was asking you, I was ex- explaining to her some about, something about my experiences in the academic space. And, and I said to her, I actually want to, you know, talk to other women about it and, you know, engage and explore what are their challenges and see, you know, how we overlap and actually support one another in that space. And so what initially started as a topic, you know, a uh, conversation with Olivia, you know, stemmed into a bigger project. And uh, the idea is to... So... I just, you know, so yeah, I met, so we met each other. So we, so I knew Kelly, but we all met each other, and we thought, oh, you know, we're all together, uh, we're all academics, activists, you know, and what are our experiences and what are our challenges, and how do we want to talk about this at this conference? So, 
Um, and the idea was to sort of centre our voices and centre our experiences in academia and, and also create solidarity and support one another. So uh, Olivia, um, yeah, sorry, um, my apologies, um, Tarika suggested uh, a movie, uh, a short doco called Black Chicks Talking uh, by Leah Purcell, and she said, you know, why don't we follow that format? So that sort of... Uh, gave us, you know, the platform as, as an idea, like as a point of departure for our project. And also a lot of our work, you know, we, we draw on women of colour as a political framework and by in doing so we, you know, we can actually address different diversities. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd put that on airplane mode, <laughs> but that's my alarm. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah, so going back... Um, yeah, so we use that to address, you know, our different intersecting locations. So women of colour, not just about women and race, but also, yeah. uh, you know, being a second generation, being international student. And what does it mean having those, you know, uh, occupying those locations in this space? And also, you know, uh, exploring a lot of times our work, as it turns out, is quite connected to our history and our lived experiences. Mm. So what does it mean to engage in what's called... Um, political creativity yeah. and you know and what I mean by that is you know centering histories and looking at that history in a context of you know social relationships mm. and uh, how does that look like in our work and what does that how does that feel being an academic and working among scholars who perhaps are more engaging in research about communities rather than with their own communities yes, and you know you come from a different point of departure and you know there's a, there's a personal investment in this as well so and what we found through the process of yeah so we did a film so I'm sort of jumping ahead a bit so we did a film and yeah and the film yeah is about you're getting together and just talking over food and you know just casually you know discussing what's going on in our lives and what we call theorizing from the flesh so you know actually centering our lived experiences to create knowledge and shared experience share experiences about what does it mean in this space for us and in doing so you know privileging the lived experience and not fragmenting that from our history because what you find in academia or you know what is historically been rooted in is this idea that knowledge is can be produced from an absent position mm. and so what that often result results in you know actually knowledge is being produced from you know even though the intention is to center people's voices and communities voices because there's a lack of uh or, not uh, adequate attention paid to how, you know, researchers' history is actually informing their subjectivity and their history in terms of, you know, the relationship to power. How is that informing their understanding of people's voices and actually representing voice? So, and what happens sometimes, you know, and in my work, and that's a motivation for my work, and a lot of the work of uh, the women that's involved in the project is actually uh, questioning not just public knowledge about their community. So, you know, for instance, Fijian um, a community or um, in terms of uh, Muslims in Australia, which is some of the topics that we looked at as well because of um, my background and also um, Kashifa's background. And also, you know, like Hong Kong, uh, um, Kelly comes from, she is an international student from Hong Kong, so what's happening in that space and how people's voices are being represented and she's like centering people's voices. So, uh, so, 
So going back to the topic that I was trying to address was, so, you know, what does it mean to center those voices and, you know, and actually highlighting that all knowledge is produced from a particular location? And, and if we're not, we're not addressing that, actually results in what's called epistemic violence or epistemic racism. So, you know, producing knowledge is about people that are actually reflective of their lived experiences. So even, even though the intentions are anti-racist and, you know, uh, with good intentions, sometimes academia has historically produced any, you know, and I can speak about a lot about Muslim women as being homogenized as this, you know, um, even though the idea is to challenge these representations, you find in academic literature that, you know, the Muslim woman is veiled and bound to her religious identity and uses her religious identity as a point of departure to, for agency. But really, in reality, we're actually way more complex than that. Yeah. And, you know, we're not just Muslim. We, you know, we come from a set of history, set of, like, you know, like we could be Turkish or it could be, you know, Albanian and it could be uh, transgender. And all these different uh, relationships intersect and give way to diversity. So it's, yeah, the idea is to claim these voices mm. in academia. And this is what what we're trying to do in our work as it turns out so you know we're so we're engaging what's called you know trans, some sort of transformative resistance through the knowledge that we're producing and in the process of doing this film we actually found that what motivates us is that lack of you know representation or the lack of uh, adequate voice and and also our anger so anger is quite central to our work or as it turns out you know a motivating factor of trying to uh, shift these representations and center, you know, knowledges that are centered, that are actually privileging everyday lived experiences of communities and, you know, and recognizing that we're in the process of producing that with participants and with, you know, our communities and recognizing that all limited well, knowledge is quite limited. Mm. So, you know, being humble about that, I think is really important. Yeah. You know, that we actually are partial knowers, so to speak. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's some of the things that we, you know, shared and discussed and what it provided this, you know, this film. And we chose the film as a method. Uh, yeah, and again, it goes back to you know, Leah Purcell's work and, you know, and also because we've got filmmakers in our crew, like uh, Kelly and Tarika, Tarika. And also it gave us the agency to control how much we wanted to share because some of the things that we do talk about, you know, it can be quite vulnerable in a sense that if you're speaking about racism in this sector and, you know, and how it plays out because people are good, well intended, but sometimes, you know, people are blind to racism as well. So, you know, uh, highlighting these issues in a public space, you know, is sometimes it can be a bit, you know, uh, you don't want to compromise your career opportunities or you don't want to fragment your relationships often. Um, so what we found was chose this as a way of like controlling how much we want to share mm. and what we want to share and you know and and then you know we'd share things among ourselves and, and we'd be like oh no we don't want that in the video definitely not so you know exercising that agency and also you know uh, demonstrating that you know knowledge is not just in writing but it actually can be produced in digital forms and you know for video and also you know subverting the idea that universe that knowledge has happened in universities by actually taking a film to and you know filming ourselves at home you know in the lounge room the dog in the background you know like that kind of stuff and the idea is to shift these ideas that you know knowledge and you know ways of knowing and theorizing is actually you know um not just happening in academia that it's in everyday places and to move that away and you know to subvert that you know um yeah the idea that academia um, that knowledge happens in only in that space or privileged knowledge. Yeah. So privileging other spaces, I guess, and, you know, demonstrating that. It's like an act of resistance in yeah. itself. I love that idea of um, 
there's a couple of things that you that you said there. Two things I think that really jumped out to me, and that was um, the idea of theorizing from the flesh, that mm. that that embodiment of 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 lived experience the fact that being people of color being marginalized bodies in various ways we exist as political entities in and of ourselves we can't exist outside well no one exists outside of it but if you're part of the white hetero we don't have a choice (laughs) we don't have a choice but to live as politicized bodies and then i love that idea that you said just then of um uh i forgot the thing the thing about um creating a new type of space where you can where you're privileging a different type of space. That's what you said, that that idea of privileging a different type of space. I love that, the idea of like domesticity and story, mm. and, and storytelling is storytelling, so often yes. um, denigrated as a means of, of, uh, of transmitting knowledge, of transmitting information, of exploring an idea, of critiquing or anything like that. Because it's, I don't know, maybe it's seen as too domestic, too feminine, perhaps, too, mm, yeah. too non-white, um, too non-patriarchal. And I, not I really distant like enough. Yeah, exactly, not distant enough. There's a, per, there's a personal content, con, contact and context to storytelling, and there's a personal contact and context through telling those stories in your own home. And I love the yes. way that you take that, but then also have agency by creating a finished product mm. that goes, this, I'm, I'm showing you this. But you're not allowed to control this. Yes. Yeah. And it's exactly what we did. You're right. Yeah. So, yeah, it was an interesting process. And through this process, you know, it's not just about sharing and validating each other's stories, but we actually found it's a place of healing as well mm. because of that validation and supporting of each other. Like, And just normalizing that, you know, this actually happens. And, yeah, there might be some people that doesn't understand some of our challenges, but we understand each other's you know, voice. And even though we've got different, you know, histories and different ways of viewing, like we found differences between us in terms of how we might, you know, see issues. And but at the same time, we allowed, because you know that, you know, you can think, you know, in a different, in, from different subject positions, you can allow for that, you know, different lived experience and how that actually leads to reasons yeah. to how we think about social issues. So you can, act, so it was quite interesting to see how we navigated that, yeah. those differences as well. Absolutely. Yeah. The idea of like sort of differences bringing us together. Yes. Lufia Ali, I could speak to you about this all day, but unfortunately, <laughs> um, we have run out of time. Um, very, very quickly, is there, would there be a way to watch this documentary outside of the conference? Yeah, so what we'll be doing is um, probably shortening it a little bit yeah. and, you know, providing snippets of it. And we want to um, put it up online and actually extend the project and uh, create a forum for other women in academia to actually share their stories and uh, their narratives about their experiences That's and fantastic. perhaps interviewing, you know, making a bit more mobile. So we'll see. But, yes, yeah. it will be available online, but I can't give you that information well, at the moment. Well, we will <laughs> definitely stay in touch and get the definitely. information from you thank so you. that we can learn more about this because this is fantastic. Excellent. Fiali, thank, thank you so much for coming in to speak about your project. Thank you, Zoya. Hi, my name's Pilar Aguilera and I'm 3CR's chairperson. I'm urging you to become a 3CR subscriber. We need to keep independent, radical, dissenting voices on air. Social change doesn't just happen, we need to nurture it. We desperately need to hear alternative ideas that allow us to organise, build community and change the systems that continue to oppress us and destroy the planet. Put your money where your mouth is. Become a member. Subscribe today.
spadja Bubaka Kaka Burizangon Bopokan Buspadja Bubaka Kaka Burizangon Bopokan CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. 
Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website, 3cr.org.au, or you can ring on 9419 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well, by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. The track we just heard is by Myra Andrade. It's called Tan Kalaka Tan, A Colours Show, released in 2019. And on the line we have Sam Hibbins, who is the uh, Greens MP, covers a lot of the LGBTQA plus stuff and is here to talk about a recent bill that has been introduced in Parliament. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Sam. Good, good morning. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a bit about this bill? Yeah, sure. Um, well, you may have remembered uh, back in late 2018, um, there was a lot of outrage uh, across the community uh, when people um, discovered, uh, thanks to the then the Liberal government's uh, radic religious review, uh, discovered that um, LGBTI kids and uh, or students and teachers at faith-based schools could actually be legally discriminated against, um, essentially um, expelled or um, sacked um, just for being um, gay or lesbian. Um, and there was a lot of outrage in the community and there was a lot of uh, promises from politicians at various levels of government to, to get rid of these laws. Uh, but unfortunately, we haven't seen that change um, in either state or federal parliament. In fact, it looks like the federal government's going in the opposite direction uh, and looking to further mm-hmm. entrench discrimination through their Religious Freedom Bill. Um, so uh, the Greens have uh, introduced a bill. It's a bill that we've introduced previously into parliament uh, that essentially gets rid of these um, provisions in the Equal Opportunity Act that allow for discrimination against LGBTI students and teachers at faith-based schools. So this would protect them from being um, uh, expelled or sacked or any other sort of insidious actions that could occur under under these laws. And as you mentioned, in 2019 you introduced a similar bill, the Victorian Greens, Mm. which was voted down by Mm. the the Labor government and the Liberal opposition. Why do you think it was voted down then and, and do you think things will be different this time around? Well, yeah, it's, it was really disappointing to see that bill go down. Um, the government, um, the Labor government, didn't give a very good reason for voting it down. I think this has been an area where, you know, look, look we, to, to give them credit, we've seen a lot of we've seen a lot of progress in terms of equality across Victoria in the last four or five years. Um, but this has really been a, a blind spot for this government. They haven't been prepared to take on um, to take on the interest groups that want to keep these laws in place. Um, and uh, uh, but I think now with the greater community awareness um, that these laws actually exist, uh, the outrage existed, uh, I would hope now that um, the government would actually, well, I would hope that actually bring forward their own bill. Um, I think that would be the best thing, the best way to actually get this law changed. So we've introduced it into state parliament, we've put it on the agenda, but now it's really up to the government, I think, to, to pick it up and run with it and introduce their own bill to change the law. 
Mm. And I think that's, yeah, that's an interesting point that there is more visibility now that we're dealing with the religious discrimination bill. Mm. Is that the reason mm. why this bill has come about now in response to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what we had is, is, is commitments um, at that time from, and this was during, of course, the state election. Uh, the commitment from the government at the time was that they would wait until, um, you know, the, the government, the federal government's review into these laws had finished uh, and then they would um, be what, what laws they might introduce after the federal government had acted. Well, it's pretty clear now that the federal government's not going to act. In fact, they're going to go in the opposite direction and further entrench discrimination. Uh, so really, we can't rely on the federal government. It's really now up to the state government to act. Mm. Uh, and And the timing as well, um, um, purely coincidental was the fact that the school year starting mm. and we shouldn't be starting yet another school year uh, for LGBTI kids um, to potentially face this discrimination in Victoria. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess for a lot of us, you know, many of us and our listeners who might not work in government, mm. can you give us a bit of an understanding in terms of how state and federal governments interact and mm, if this mm. bill did pass, how would it, you know, and, and, and became law, how would it interact with the religious discrimination mm. bill? Can it override it or, you know, how well, would that this play is, out? Yeah, this, yeah, well, this is one of the unclear um, elements at the moment. And there are concerns that the government's new religious freedom bill would undercut um, or override or undermine state-based law. Um, there's been a number of iterations of the religious freedom bill going forward. So we're actually going to see what is the actual going to be the... What, what's, the, what's the bill that's actually going to par- debate it or potentially pass Parliament? Um, but my point would be, um, irregardless of that, the best thing that we can do here at a state level um, is get those protections in now for students and teachers. I think that would be a really cr- strong statement and a really strong message to the federal government um, that they're going in the wrong direction. And put those, put those um, protections in place now I think would make it harder for the federal government to unwind them or undermine them. Mm, totally. And I guess it's, it's, I'd imagine also what it represents for the public, you know, to have a party that is standing up against this bill and, yeah. and proposing well, another bill. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, in Victoria, we, we pride ourselves on being, you know, a really progressive state. Um, you know, the government called themselves the most progressive government and the most progressive state. Uh, and we've really got to live up to those ideals. Um, and we can't just let this really important um, law reform and these really important protections that need to be put in place, we can't just leave them on the back burner and hope that the federal government's going to act. Mm. And so the bill has been read in the Legislative Council, the mm. Upper House of the Victorian Parliament. What are the next steps for it to become law? What, what's the possible timeline here? Mm. Well, look, as I said before, what we'd write, we, we put it on the agenda and what we'd really like to do is see the government introduce uh, their own bill and pick it up and run with it. They've got um, uh, far more more um, control and, and time to put in the, the, their own legislation. Um, but if they don't do that, um, we're going to we'll, we'll obviously assess and, and um, as the year goes on to see when the opportunities are for us to debate that bill. As a as a as a um, crossbench party, uh, we've got certain slots in which we can debate our bill. Um, so we'll have to um, see really what, how things play out. But as I said, we, what we're really keen to do is see the government actually introduce their own bill. And hopefully, I would hope that this year, 
uh, they'd actually do that. I don't think we can wait another year mm. um, whilst with these, these discriminatory provisions are in place. Yeah, and this is clearly something that puts a lot of students at risk, for sure. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. And these, look, uh, to, to give credit, there are a lot of faith-based schools that, that do the right thing. Yeah. Um, but the fact is these laws are really insidious. So where there are um, some examples of direct discrimination, uh, there's also examples of, you know, indirect discrimination and people, um, uh, you know, changing their changing their their, their actions um, because of these laws in place. Just uh, an example, uh, I've got some um, teachers in my electorate who refuse to apply for jobs uh, at faith-based schools because there might be the risk of discrimination right. um, around the corner. Yeah. Uh, if you think of, say, uh, a young person um, who's um, you know, coming to coming to terms with their sexuality uh, at school and doing that uh, in a in an environment where potentially maybe they might be expelled or they might be discriminated against. You know, that's just an untenable environment to to, to exist in. Mm. Um, so really, these laws, um, even though there are and there are examples of direct discrimination, uh, they really create an untenable environment for both students and teachers, and they're really quite insidious. Mm. And particularly considering the fact that Australia is supposedly a secular society, this seems quite contradictory to that. Well, yeah, that's absolutely right. And and it's also worth pointing out that these carve-outs um, in the Equal Opportunity Act that allow for this discrimination, uh, they not only apply to faith-based schools, but they also apply to faith-based uh, organisations and service providers. Right. And I'll give you an example, particularly um, homeless service providers. <clears throat> where you might have the situation of a young person being kicked out of home because of their sexuality, which still occurs um, in, in this country. We might not, we might be, we might not think that, that that we're still there, but yeah, this mm. actually still occurs. So they face discrimination uh, at home. Well, they're not then going to, they're going to be quite reticent to then access a faith-based homeless service provider if there's a risk of just facing discrimination mm. there. Um, so look, our bill is to change the law for schools. We think that was a uh, a really pressing need and, a, and a, a, a first step. But what we'd really like to see and what we've pushed for in the past is to get rid of these exemptions altogether. Yeah. Uh, so if you're a faith-based school or service provider, uh, you can't discriminate on the basis of sexuality. Mm. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I think that's a really important point in addition uh, to add to this conversation that really needs to be acknowledged. Mm. And I guess we're talking about the most vulnerable members of our queer community, mm. uh, both younger mm. people and uh, people experiencing homelessness. How can mm. listeners get involved with this issue and be active about this? Well, look, I, I think where listeners can be active is to really... Um, Show, you know, maintain the rage. Um, um, contact with us. Contact your your government MP. Um, speak out about it throughout your channels or attend any any protests or rallies. Where what governments um, really have been able to get away with is the fact that they don't think people actually are aware of these laws. Mm. Um, it's kind of been a little a, sort of like a, a dirty secret, if you will. Um, and what they what they're banking on is that people either um, don't know about them won't get upset about them. Um, well, uh, my my um, you know, advice to people is to really make it clear to your, your government MP um, or on whatever channels that you've got, your social media channels, uh, that you are aware that these laws are in place and you are outraged that they're in place and governments need to act to change them. But <clears throat> that's what I think is going to actually get, mm. get it over the line in the end. 
Yeah, totally. And this is clearly a really important example that not everything is moving forward in this kind of progression, that if we are complacent, then things can be uh, can be pushed back. And uh, for mm. queer people and allies, we really need to speak up about this. So thank you so much for your time this morning, Sam. No, thank you for having me, and thank you for talking about this. I think it's really important. So, yeah, thanks so much. No worries. Have a good day. Cheers. 3CR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to one at 3CR Community Radio. Please subscribe now. Testimony on the 3CR Community Radio Araja Al-Ishtrakal and Ningal Ungalin Samuhavanali 3CR Kirtukondirkal. Rindre Ningal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Metsuketsek Radio Igaranin. For a time, good am Elbumi High Karotin. Hima Artsanakrovetsek Iper Trisiari Antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Wear your radical radio colours in one of 3CR's new T-shirts. The bright new design comes straight from this year's popular Radiothon poster designed by Aisha Tufa. T-shirts cost $30 to pick up or $37 with postage. So drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Call 9419-8377 to place your order. Or buy one online at 3cr.org.au slash shop. 3CR Radical Radio T-shirts. Get one one now. Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We are coming to the end of our show. That was a great interview, George. Thank you. Yeah, it's really good to listen about some really important uh, legislative movements that need to be happening in this space. So that was a great show. Yeah. Madison, how did you find your first show? Good, good. I feel, uh, I feel quite confident. Mm-hmm. I, you know, every time I get up early, I feel very inspired to get up early tomorrow, but I am sure that I won't do that. No. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm yeah. having a nap this afternoon. That's my plan. <laughs> I'm the rest of you. <laughs> so on the show today, we had um, Dr. Margaret Beavis, who spoke to us about Australia's uh, arms exports, mm. very problematic, selling of weapons to countries accused of war crimes. Then we had Dr. Lutfia Ali speaking about a film about women of colour in academia at the Ac- Activism at the Margins conference, which will be, is being recorded by people at 3CR, so we'll be have, having some content for you later. Yes, mm-hmm. and lastly we spoke to Sam Hibbins, Greens MP, who talked about a bill that's been introduced to Parliament to amend the Equal Opportunity Act, basically to tackle the religious discrimination bill at the state level. Mm. Up next is Accent of Women, so please stick with us. And, of course, tomorrow morning, Wednesday breakfast, and you'll hear us next week. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.